Good early afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Jim Harper. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato, and I've been working for over a decade at Cato on issues around privacy, including the privacy issues we deal with with the national ID. We're here on a very special day, and I'm sorry I'm, uh, I don't have a sheet cake for us to enjoy at the end of the event. <laughs> But it is the 10-year anniversary of the passage of the Real ID Act, which is the United States National ID Law. Real ID was passed 10 years ago, attached to a military spending bill, must-pass legislation. And although there had been a test passage of Real ID in the House, uh, it moved to the Senate in this uh, appropriations bill, uh, got, got no debate, got uh, no opportunity for the Senate to uh, modify the, the Real ID Act, and no up or down vote. Uh, proponents of Real ID and the National ID system often argue that Real ID was an upshot of the uh, 911 Commission report. And uh, that story has pretty good carry because everybody honors the 911 Commission report, rightly or wrongly. But the question of identity security only occupied about three quarters of a page in several hundred pages of material that the 911 Commission put out. And the Commission itself uh, didn't establish in any way how identity security or a national identity system would provide greater security to Americans from that kind of terrorist attack or others. And in fact, passage of the Real ID Act 10 years ago repealed a negotiated rulemaking that had been created by earlier legislation. So the Real ID law actually uh, uh, lopped out uh, uh, a way go going forward uh, for uh, states to, to improve their identity systems, to improve their, their licenses as they wish to do, consistent with their residents' interests. When the law passed, it provided a three-year deadline for implementation. Uh, within three years, all states in the nation were to begin issuing their IDs subject to the federal standards found in the Real ID Act. Well, it took the Department of Homeland Security two years to come out with regulations that would establish how the states were to do that, and it was quickly obvious that states were not going to be compliant with Real ID within that three years. And since then, we've actually been watching a series of false deadlines that the DHS has put forward uh, for, for Real ID compliance. When the first deadline came out, it really spurred, that's when states started paying attention, and it spurred what I've called the Real ID Rebellion. Uh, you can sort of place the first shot in the Real ID Rebellion pretty, pretty much anywhere you want, but I put it in New Hampshire in April of 2006. New Hampshire was considering a bill uh, to defy Real ID, to refuse, uh, to refuse compliance with the Real ID Act. The committee that had considered it uh, labeled the passed, the, passed the bill up to the, to the full New Hampshire House with the label inexpedient to legislate. That's how committees up there decide that they want to kill a bill. They all get up or down votes in the, in the legislature there, which is a real chore for the, for the multiple legislators in New Hampshire. Anyway, the bill had been tagged as inexpedient, inexpedient to legislate by the committee, and a representative named Neil Kirk uh, gave a speech that was quite passionate, uh, harked back to the, the, the time of the founders, and their, their reasoning for, for the Revolutionary War and the kinds of things that they wanted in New Hampshire for their people. And Kirk's speech um, changed the will of the House in New Hampshire, and they actually voted uh, to, to move forward with that legislation. Ultimately, it didn't pass in the, in the Senate and become law, but it was the first shot, and that, that's what began things. Maine was actually the first state 
to pass legislation against Real ID. And over time, uh, 25 states across the country passed legislation either outright barring their state from compliance or asking the federal government to revisit Real ID. There's a particular moment that, that was, was pretty special where one of the Department of Homeland Security's deadlines was coming up quickly, and they were threatening states. If you do not uh, fulfill the federal mandates in terms of identity issuance, uh, we're going to start barring your residents from, from traveling. The way Real ID works is that federal agencies won't accept IDs from states that aren't complying. The main one is the Transportation Security Administration, the TSA. The threat is that states that don't comply will see their residents turned away at airports because they don't have an ID that the TSA will accept. Well, at a particular point in time, many states had barred themselves from participating in Real ID, and the Department of Homeland Security was threatening to bar residents of these states from, from traveling. And gov the governor of South Carolina, a Republican, the governor of Montana, a Democrat, both said to the DHS, I can't ask you for an extension of, of the compliance deadline because we don't plan to ever comply. And in, in separate incidents, the Department of Homeland Security took a letter not asking for an extension of the deadline, treated that as a request for an extension of the deadline, and granted it. This is how the, the real ID deadlines have been proceeding ever <coughs> since, is that the Department of Homeland Security has been granting extensions and actually claiming compliance where it isn't in, in existence. Uh, the DHS quickly retreated from actual compliance being their standard to a thing they call a material compliance checklist, which is some things that are important to Real ID, and there may be good identity security separately, but those some things, they count as compliance. Uh, presently, no state is in compliance with Real ID, no state anywhere in the country. But you'll hear tell that, that, that many states are in compliance, many states are near compliance, they've pledged full compliance. It's really not happening. But Real ID is not uh, a top issue anymore. The Real ID rebellion happened. It was largely a success. It's been a decade, and there is no national ID in the United States. But slow and steady wins the race. And across the country, the Department of Homeland Security is working with uh, local Department of Motor Vehicle bureaucrats to try to move forward with uh, compliance. And so presently, given a 2016 deadline that the, that the DHS is putting forward in communications with uh, motor vehicle bureaucrats, you're starting to see legislation pop up again. Uh, and some states have switched from being opposed to Real ID to being compliant with Real ID because of the sort of consistent drumbeat, that, that threat that people will be turned away for, at TSA if their state isn't compliant with the Real ID Act. So here we are at 10 years with a Real ID, with Real ID and a national ID law. Uh, we're going to take a look at where we've come from historically, uh, where we're going. Uh, how to think about a national ID, and uh, perhaps what to do about it. We're going to start hearing from, by hearing from Professor Adam Kandub from the Michigan State University. He joined the faculty there in the fall of 2004. Uh, prior to this, he was an attorney advisor for the Federal Communications Commission in the Media Bureau, and previously in the Common Carrier Bureau, Competitive Pricing Division. We forgive him for that service to our nation. It was a uh, brutal lesson. I'll give him that. <laughs> Uh, he, also, he also worked in um, several major law firms and was a clerk to Judge J. Clifford Wallace in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. He has a really interesting forthcoming paper on, uh, on the history of individual control of identity information and, and, and what your identity is. That's changing in, in the modern era.
Gabe Rotman, who's on, on my far left here, will go next. He's a legislative council policy advisor in the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office, uh, focusing, on, focusing on First Amendment free speech and privacy. He advocates in Congress and the federal agencies for the freedom of speech, press, assembly, petition, uh, and works on intellectual property, telecommunications regulation, media law, criminal speech restrictions, and the rights of protesters. He doesn't have very much to do. <laughs> uh, prior to this position, he also served in private practice. Gabe inherited the, the real ID, national ID portfolio from a series of uh, illustrious advocates at the ACLU, and also from Tim Sparapani, our friend who's, who's here today. Finally, we'll hear from Edward Hasbrook. Ed is an author, journalist, blogger, consumer advocate, speaker, and travel expert. He's here under the auspices of the Identity Project, which you can find at papersplease.org. I think you'll see that there's no more energetic advocate for the right to travel. You'll see that on display today, as, you, as we always do. Uh, Ed, over the years that I've known him, has, has, has not changed in his adherence to principle. Uh, but he has changed from being a tie-dye wearing guy, I mean just about everything tie-dye, to a really nicely dressed up fellow. So let's begin with Professor Candube and go through these gentlemen. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Jim, for setting this together. And uh, it's a real pleasure to meet you. I'm a great admirer of your work. And uh, I'm really looking forward to what some of the uh, other panelists will be saying today. So the Real ID Act um, diminishes privacy today and um, because it allows government and private parties to demand that we assume one identity in virtually every aspect of our lives. And we take that for granted. I talk to my students and most of them say, well, of course, what else could there be? But in fact, for most of our history, we being common law people in the history of the United States, um, people have had the right to assume whatever name they wish, to assume whatever identity they wish, and that these names had legal effect, and that the common law developed tools for people to go around without having a government register, an official register of their true identities, whatever that might be. Um, so if you, you know, bother to look, look through the cases in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th century, you'll see tons of contract cases dealing with people who sign contracts under different names. And you know, my name is John Smith. Well, that's the name I choose to call myself when I moved into the Northwest Territories. And courts said, OK, that's fine. As long as you're commonly known as John Smith and people think you're John Smith, you can be John Smith. And when you sign a contract, it will be binding. Uh, if you commit a crime, indictments can be written under the name John Smith, and they're binding. If you write inheritance, you can inherit under the name John Smith. And this is very different than, um, well, to some degree England, but certainly our friends on the continent, where you had one official name, it was kept in a church or government registry, and if, you, if documents did not use that name, they were a legal nullity. Uh, and this freedom uh, it has you know, two really good advantages, well, wonderful advantages. One is it allows for anonymity, pseudonymity in our lives. Um, which in turn allows for privacy, allows us to develop ourselves in ways um, that we might not to, to avoid certain types of social stigma. Uh, and uh, that's you know, an obvious benefit, uh, which gradually uh, government action has diminished. 
And of course, it, it does start, um, when I sometimes teach privacy uh, to my class, I have this big picture of Eleanor Roosevelt, and I say, yes, it usually, all the bad things start with her, but it, does, it did start with Social Security, the Social Security number, and the expansion of the welfare state. If government wants to do business with you and give out benefits, it has to know who you are. And we see a gradual accretion of laws requiring you to use your true name, generally the name that's registered with the Social Security Agency in, in documents. And you, you see in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, really the metastasis, as a judgmental term, the spread um, of these requirements from Social Security administrations to various parts of the government um, to outside, to using the Social Security number, for instance, in state government, in state government actions. Um, and what this means is that if you wanted to use a common law name, it gets harder and harder to do so. Um, what Real ID has done is sort of taken the last step, where it really threatens uh, um, to make anonymity and pseudonymity impossible in virtually every sphere of our lives. And you know, without um, being you know, too obsequious to my kind host, it is but for the efforts of people like Jim Harper that we're really not pushed over the edge, and that we really might actually live in a society in which government-issued IDs are required in virtually everything we do. Um, because what we see is the, the requirement for a real ID, for a government-issued ID, it, you know, is becoming enmeshed in a whole bunch of, of legal regimes, both, both private and public. So just to use a few examples, uh, how many of you have gone to the doctor recently? Have you been asked to provide an identification? Okay, it's interesting. Uh, it used to be the Treasury Department required that. That was actually, they, they, uh, Congress revoked that requirement. So it used to be a legal requirement. Now, going to the your doctor should be a rather private thing. Um, uh, you all live in a big city, it's a little bit different. I come from a small uh, town in, in rural Michigan, and you know, doctors know a lot what's going on in the town. Um, going to the doctor under a pseudonym actually could be very beneficial. If, for instance, you come from a conservative community and you had some sexual disease or something you didn't want people to know about. Because let's face it, the secretaries and workers in, hosp in hospitals and, and doctor's offices can be pretty nosy. Say you had an abortion, you live in a conservative community, you don't want people to know about that. Wouldn't it be nice if you could go to a doctor under a pseudonym? Well, with Real ID, it's really quite hard to do. Um, as I said, it used to be a legal requirement, um, but now most, um, at least where I live, but most large hospital practices that, of course, owned and work with insurance companies required as a protection against identity fraud. And it's an interesting example of how this government-issued ID sort of jumps into the private sector because it's easy and cheap for them to use. Uh, it, they, they do have a concern about identity fraud, but what does that mean? It means that we who wish to have some privacy in our medical care, well, too bad for you. And it's because government has assumed this role of assuming the cost of creating real ID that you can't go to the doctor and have that private. Um, so it's not impossible. You could go find a doctor, for instance, who uh, didn't require an ID. It's not part of one of these large insurance or, or, or uh, hospital practices. 
Okay, I've, I've done that. I've, I actually have done this. I'm reporting a, a truth. I, I went to a physician under a pseudonym, and you know, yes, it's like, yes, you have a sinus infection. Here's your antibiotics. Um, Mr. Spellman, I, I just revealed my, my identity. <laughs> and so I took my prescription to uh, CVS, and I'm sitting in line waiting to fill it. And of course, I was you know, thinking about the law. I'm a law professor, and I realized, I bet there's a law against filling a prescription under a fake ID, a uh, fake name. It's probably a felony. Furthermore, under 24 states, you're required to give your ID when you fill a prescription. So here's an example of real ID working with other legal requirements to essentially eliminate a privacy that we once enjoyed, which is going to the doctor under a fake name because you really don't want the doctor's secretary and all the office workers to know that you're there to be treated for, I don't know, gonorrhea or something. Not that anyone would, of course, in this room, but you know what I'm saying. So uh, um, it, it, this is how uh, you know, all pervasive identification can, in fact, diminish rights, which we once had not so long ago. And just to use another example I'm sure you're familiar with, um, you know, the internet. Uh, I actually have a very, very old PayPal account under a pseudonym. Um, it's now not really legal because under the Banking Secrecy Act regulations, you have to use a real ID name. But you know, that's who we are today. We are our identities online. Um, and we're, you can't buy anything without really revealing who you are because you have to pay by credit card. To get a credit card, you really, um, under the most Banking Security Act regulations, you have to use some sort of government-issued ID. And so what we're seeing is that a, a sort of a, a accretion of regulatory and legal requirements, stripping away uh, our ability to go about our lives under assumed names, rights which we used to have. Um, so there's, a, there's an interesting legal issue. Uh, most, with the exception of four or five states, most states do recognize that the common law system, the common law naming system exists together with the formal naming system of, name, of registries and vital statistics um, state departments. Um, so the question is, can you go to your state DMV and demand uh, a driver's license under a common law name? It would seem to me, if you have a legal right to use that, a common law name, the state should be able to issue you a, a, a license under a common law name. And wouldn't that be cool if you had a driver's license under a common law name? You could open bank accounts under a pseudonym. You could go to the doctor under the pseudonym. You could do whatever you would want under a pseudonym if you had this, this little ID. Um, and to some degree, well, in a mild degree, you sort of can, uh, at least for a passport. Um, there's an interesting U.S. Uh, there's an interesting case um, that establishes the right that you can get a passport under a common law name, um, and there are been there have been a handful of cases um, where courts have been somewhat open to the ability of people to get IDs under a common law name, but in truth, most of them are pretty hostile. Uh, it seems it seems sort of foreign or unusual um, and somehow disruptive for people to ask for such a thing. Um, there is one exception, however, and it's interesting, and that is in, in the prison context. Uh, in an example of where individuals have been able to use the court system to demand government recognition of their common law names. Because what most courts say is, look, you can use a common law name, 
that's fine. Um, it's just government has no obligation to use it. It can use whatever name it wants to record who you are. So if you go to the DMV and you ask for uh, an identification under your common law name, um, uh, the typical argument would be, well, you can, you, can, you can have your wife call you this, you can have your friends call you this, but government doesn't have to call you this if it doesn't want to. And there is an interesting line of cases um, in the prison context in which uh, converts to religion or generally often well, Islam in particular will, will change their name and therefore will demand recognition from the uh, in incarcerating institution of their common law name. Um, they will assume this new identity and they'll want it on the back of their orange jumper suits. And courts have recognized that there's a First Amendment right, at least in that context, to some sort of accommodation of a prisoner's common law right name. Um, it's interesting, uh, that right has not been recognized outside the prison context, which is slightly ironic um, if, you know, from a variety of perspectives. You know, if you want you know, true recognition of your common law name, you have to go into jail. Um, uh, and, and finally, a, a, as, a, as, a legal, as a legal point, um, there is you know, the cases that are, are known as you know, you're the right to anonymity. Um, cases, famous cases like Alabama XREL, uh, and NAACP XREL v. Alabama, in which the Supreme Court has been clear that as far as political speech or religious speech, government can't compel you to identify yourself in order to as a prerequisite, a requirement to engage in this speech. And what Real ID, the specter of Real ID, suggests is that if we go through life, in every aspect of our life requires disclosure of our one identity, the one you know, identity as defined by real ID, that is, in effect, a, a, a diminishment or perhaps even a complete destruction of our ability to participate anonymously in political, in social life. Um, so in conclusion, uh, real ID, if, if, adop if adopted universally, uh, does constitute a major backtracking away from the rights which we as Americans enjoyed. And it's being done without a serious scrutiny by the public, without a real understanding of the losses to personal privacy and autonomy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, <clears throat> Thanks, Jim, for, for having me here. Uh, thanks to the Cato Institute for hosting this event. Uh, so I, you know, I'm I'm relatively new to this issue. Uh, I spent basically the entire weekend trying to get up to speed on on real ID uh, and you know why why it matters, why it's important, and you know it, it, it's a good uh, segue actually from Professor Kandub's uh, uh, talk about you know why why is this important? Why is anonymous speech uh, something that uh, you know, we as, uh, as civil libertarians should 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 uh, should protect, uh, defend, and honor. And you know, real ideas I think of a piece with uh, a number of different um, trends uh, and uh, you know legal and policy phenomena that have uh, that that have come up over the re over recent years, which which actually follow in in perhaps an unfortunate trend away from. Uh, the case law that that uh, Professor Kennedy was just referring to, 
um, you know, the NAACP case, for instance, which was really sort of the zenith of, uh, of thinking in this country that um, the, the act of political association really cannot be robust, uh, cannot be fully formed if, if, if we're, we're unable to do so anonymously or pseudonymously. Um, and I, you know, I, I think I think Real ID, the the way in which uh, it was passed, I I think the the Real ID rebellion uh, is heartening, um, but it's it's unfortunate though that the 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 push to quietly implement Real ID in the states um, is uh, uh, is running at counter purposes to that. Um, so I, I just wanted to 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 highlight a couple of different issues that came came to mind as I was. Uh, getting up to speed on on real ID the, this weekend uh, that that highlight uh, the the dangers in moving away from a, a First Amendment uh, right to anonymous speech or pseudonymous speech, um, which is really represented in in real ID and and the push for a national ID card, the uh, the requirement that you have one single name in boarding a plane or or one single name when um, when when seeking to get a driver's license. Um, you know the 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 the, the first uh, set set of issues is uh, a push to eliminate anonymity on the internet, um, and these, these take many different forms. I'll just mention a few. Uh, w one of which is the the expansion of uh, cyberbullying or cyber harassment laws online. Um, which, which really, traditionally, harassment laws have been one-to-one -one communications, harassing phone calls. Um, it, 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 nobody has any objection to to laws sanctioning that type of behavior. Um, what, what's happened in recent years is a push to sanction one-to-many communications, where the speaker can avert his or her eyes. Um, can can seek not to 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 access that that information, and the reason why that that is of particular note for for anonymous speech is because by by actually criminalizing uh, annoying or harassing one to many speech, you're effectively saying that that speech cannot cannot actually be performed anonymously. Uh, and, and, and that, that has happened both on a state and federal level. Uh, in 2012, there was an Arizona law uh, which, went, uh, which, would, which would have uh, punished you know, purely, purely annoying speech in this, this one-to-many context. Um, another example where there's been a push against anonymous speech, which again is of a piece with uh, this, this, this real ID notion, is um, moves on the political front to abrogate the right to anonymous political speech. Most notably at the FEC, there's been um, a push among by by the uh, by the, the chairman and Ravel to to reassess uh, the 2005 regulations governing um, political speech online, which would allow the FEC to regulate as political communications uh, free or low cost um, internet speech. Uh, which, which would directly, which would directly in, in those regulations, in addition to requiring reporting the FEC, uh, would require disclosure of who's engaged in those communications. Um, the, the other area that, that I'll note 
uh, that uh, that deals with this push to abrogate anonymity um, online is uh, the recent um, momentum behind cybersecurity legislation uh, in Congress. Right, right now, there are uh, three bills pending. Um, uh, there are two that uh, passed out of the House uh, two or three weeks ago, one from the Homeland Security Committee, one from the House Intelligence Committee, uh, and then there's one pending in the Senate, the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act. Um, and well, on their face, they may not, they, they, it may not seem like there's much in common with Real ID. They also uh, represent this, this alarming trend away from the traditional notion of protecting anonymous speech online. Um, th those laws would provide liability protection for, for companies sharing amongst themselves, which in and of itself isn't so much of an issue, but would provide broad liability protection if those companies share uh, cybersecurity information, put that in quotes, with the government. Um, and uh, the, the, the issue so, so much isn't that they're sharing ones and, zero, ones and zeros or malware code. Um, it's that the laws are written deliberately quite broad so that they would allow the sharing of personal information with the government. Um, and in this cybersecurity model, once the information is shared with the government under this broad liability protection, personal information, the, the requirements that you strip personal information from, from those, uh, for, for the requirement that you strip personal information from what's shared with the government um, is uh, broadly defined so that the so that the the, the scrub is not adequate to protect, protect privacy. W once that information is shared with the government, the government can then do with that information things that go far beyond cybersecurity, in including um, ordinary criminal investigations and prosecutions, and potentially counterterrorism or foreign intelligence purposes. Um, I, I, I note these issues. Uh, you know, not, 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 I, I note these issues because, as I say, th this is uh, part of an alarming trend away from the traditional model of anonymous speech, you know, anonymous speech online, but also in uh, the personal, social, professional spheres. Um, the, 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 the laws since, since the, the 1960s has moved away from um, the, the notion of uh, protecting our ability to associate freely um, and anonymously uh, towards this real ID model where um, that notion is all but for, forgotten. Um, so so I'll, I'll, I'll just leave it with that. I, I, the, 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 the problem with real ID, you know, this is one of those issues where um, at times privacy and, uh, and the First Amendment privacy and free speech can be, uh, can be at odds. Can, there can be tensions there. Um, this is fundamentally one of those issues where uh, the, the interests of free expression, um, which serve as they do uh, so, social demo and democratic development, um, are uh, completely dovetail uh, very, very well with the interests of personal privacy um, and especially the right to anonymous speech. Thanks. So the Real ID Act was crafted to address two political problems. First, in order to uh, circumvent public opposition to the creation of a federally managed or federally issued ID card or identity database, uh, the Real ID Act mandated uh, and was designed to mandate uh, the creation of a distributed database, which would function as a single one 
in which a single query could retrieve data from 55 uh, state and territorial uh, identity databases while the data remained at the state level. Um, the second political problem, uh, Jim having, I think, accurately recounted the, the opposition, which everybody knew there was going to be at the state level, was how to coerce states into uh, collaborating with the Real ID Act, even though the federal government knew it had no authority directly to mandate that. There are actually two key actions that were required uh, in order to create the database. And there's been talk about ID cards. Really, the Real ID Act is about the database. Um, and two things, one, the construction of the hub that would enable these state databases to function as a single distributed database. That's been done, unfortunately. Um, the second, though, which is the phase we're now in, is getting each of those 55 states and territories to plug in to that hub so that its records could be searched by that single query. And the device that was adopted as a way to coerce states was to indirectly get to them by threatening to punish residents of states that didn't comply, i.e. plug their database into the federal hub, uh, contractors hub, so the feds can say we don't touch it, but um, develop to beat the federal mandate. Punish residents of those states for the actions of their state legislatures by not accepting ID from non-compliant states when presented by their residents for federal purposes. And so the essence of real ID enforcement is the rollout of these sanctions against individual residents of non-compliant states who are trying to use ID for federal purposes. So it all rests on what are the circumstances in which one presents ID for a federal purpose. The Real ID regulations define two, access to federal facilities and travel by commercial aircraft. The first of those is addressed in the phase of Real ID implementation, which subject to an indefinite number of future postponements by rulemaking or rulemaking by press release, as Jim has alluded to, currently scheduled to begin on October 10th of this year, is a requirement to uh, use, re uh, to, uh, or a threat to deny access to federal facilities to those with non-compliant ID if those facilities have been designated as federal security level three, four, or five. What are those facilities, if any? We don't know. No list has been made public. We asked for the guidelines for assigning these federal security levels, and they're very disturbing. For example, it's a point score that's to be used where the same number of points is awarded for a facility having been the target of political protest as for having been the target of violent attack. Um, be, having been a place where citizens exercise their right to petition for redress of grievances is defined for purposes of assigning a federal security level as tantamount to violent terrorism. But we then, we made an experiment with uh, uh, filing Freedom of Information Act requests that were based in San Francisco for some of the local uh, federal facilities to see whether they've been assigned these levels. We started, of course, with the most conspicuous potential symbolic terrorist target on the West Coast, the Golden Gate Bridge, each end of which is in a different federal facility. When we asked, neither of them had any record that any consideration had ever been given to assigning any federal security level, much less one high enough to trigger the real ID regulations. 
We asked next about the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge, actually an even more critical piece of critical infrastructure, the center of which passes through an island, which is a federal reservation. Had they assigned a federal security level? No. We asked the General Service Administration, which administers the U.S. District Courthouse, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Courthouse, federal office buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they too have to date found no record that any of these have been assigned a federal security level. So this whole elaborate looking schema may be quite hollow. But even, we actually did hear afterwards that apparently in response to our inquiries, they started thinking about now they're gonna assign a security level to the Golden Gate Bridge because we asked. But even if these were to be done, uh, there is still an important exception in the real ID regulations as there has to be. DHS knows full well that there's no statutory authority um, or constitutional authority for conditioning many federal benefits, rights, um, on or access to buildings, on presenting ID. Um, and so they've included in their real ID specifications that access to federal facilities will be allowed regardless of whether you have compliant ID for purposes of receiving federal benefits which is the main reason people would want or need to access federal facilities. People don't like hang around in federal buildings for the fun of it. Um, at least most people outside the Beltway don't. Um, so it's really, that's the smaller piece. As, as Jim alluded to in his introduction, the core of whether there's any teeth to real ID is whether people will be prevented from flying. That will be phase four of Real ID Act implementation at a date to be named later that can be set back as far in the future, not earlier than next year, and well, it could easily go another 10 years. Um, there's no reason the current standoff couldn't occur, and there have been other standoffs over state compliance, even state driver's license department compliance with federal desires that have gone on for much longer than the 10 years of the Real ID Act. It's, these deadlines don't mean much of anything, but whenever, if that happens, um, the implicit threat of the TSA and DHS has been, if we don't accept your state ID, you won't be allowed to fly. That is not true. Not only is there an international treaty right to travel, not only is there a constitutional uh, right to assemble, there is an explicit federal statutory right to travel by air. There is an explicit federal statutory mandate to DHS in issuing regulations to consider the public right of transit through the navigable airspace. Um, and in fact, despite the threats that have been made, the official, and despite signs, false, admittedly false signs posted by DHS in every airport that you must show ID, the legal position of DHS and TSA in every case in which this issue has been arised, the, has arisen, the consistent legal position has been that there is no federal statute or regulation that requires you to show any ID credentials in order to travel. That was the position that persuaded the Ninth Circuit uh, to reach its very, otherwise a very bad decision in Gilmore versus Gonzalez in 2006. That was the testimony that I heard from TSA witnesses in the criminal trial of Phil Mosick in 2011 when he was falsely arrested at the behest of the TSA for trying to document the process of flying without ID because although they know that legally they must recognize this right, they are loath to have the public discover that they have this right. They want us to forget our fundamental right to travel. But 
The reality is that people fly without ID every day. And this is what the TSA says in litigation. We have a process for that. We don't require ID. There are alternative ways. Um, we've tried to find out what happened. Um, we filed a Freedom of Information Act requests for the reports that the TSA prepares every day, uh, summarizing how many people have tried to fly without ID and what happened. In two years, they've managed to process and release only one day of sample data from a date about just about a year ago in May of 2014. But on that date, May 6, 2014, 129 people in this country tried to get on airplanes without showing ID that the TSA deemed acceptable. Of that 129, 120 were allowed to fly after having their ID verified through a bizarre and objectionable process that involved calling up a call center that queries a commercial data broker, we think it's Axiom, although we haven't been able to tell for sure, ask you a game of 20 questions and sees if your answers match what they're finding in your Axiom file. And if they match, they let you on the plane. The other, uh, the remaining nine people, six of them, their ID couldn't be verified, but they were allowed to fly anyway at the discretion, which is to say whim of the federal security director in charge on duty at that moment at the airport. Three people, Two and a half percent of those who tried to fly without ID were actually turned away. Now, these were gross breaches of those rights. Of those three, one was turned away because they couldn't find an Axiom file for him. Is not having an Axiom file a crime or cause for denial of your rights? A second was turned away because they chose to exercise their right to remain silent when interrogated by the TSA. Um, and a third was denied the right to fly because their answers did not match what was in the file supplied by the current, uh, by the, uh, data broker on questions such as who resides at the same address or nearby. Now, I don't know that I could accurately tell you who Axiom thinks I live with or who Axiom thinks live next door, where there is a household full of day laborers and rooms are sublet for cash by the master tenant, and even the landlord doesn't know who actually knows lives there. But objectionable though that is, that's, again, a tiny percentage of those who uh, tried to fly without ID were actually turned away. So the real threat is not, we're gonna prevent your residents from flying if you don't vote to plug your state motor vehicle database into the real ID hub. The real threat is we will harass your residents with more intrusive searches, with interrogation, with delay um, if you don't uh, collaborate with Real ID. And so the crux of whether Real ID sanctions uh, can be used to coerce the states rests on the legality of these kinds of low or lower grade harassments, as well as the legality of turning people away from flying. So people who oppose Real ID need to get involved now in challenging these kinds of harassments of travelers. Uh, as well as challenging issues of denial of access to federal buildings and other federal facilities to people who don't have ID. The leading case on that being the terrible memorandum opinion from the Ninth Circuit in Fodi versus McHugh. Um, but uh, what I do envision, given that enforcement is going to rest on ratcheting up harassment of the residents of non-compliant states, we are going to see litigation. So what are the issues that that litigation is going to present? Um, again, it's going to be about access to buildings and primarily about the right to fly. 
Who's going to bring it? Unfortunately, the states won't directly have standing. The injured people will be the individuals. States that want to oppose Real ID need to be coming forward now and making a commitment to their residents that they will defend their right to travel and that if the federal government chooses to interfere with the rights of their residents because it doesn't like the state IDs that are being issued, um, that the states are able, willing, and prepared to intervene as amici to vigorously defend the rights of their residents against federal interference. The standard of review is also a problem. Mostly these are going to be reviews of actions taken by the TSA. And if we're going to have meaningful judicial review of those actions, we need to repeal not only the Real ID Act, which we do need to repeal, but in the meantime, we also need to repeal 49 U.S. Code 46110, which is the jurisdiction statute enacted to attempt to protect the TSA against any kind of judicial review. Under that statute, TSA orders can be reviewed only by the circuit courts, not by district courts. They're not able to conduct any trial or fact-finding, and they're required to uh, conduct their review under a deferential standard of review that accepts any TSA fact-finding of fact supported by any evidence in the record, regardless of how much countervailing evidence is in the administrative record. And of course, they review it only on the administrative record supplied by the TSA itself. If we're going to meaningfully litigate, that needs to be one of our targets. But fundamentally, um, along with that litigation, the effort to indirectly coerce the states is predicated on the assumption that individuals whose rights are violated, who are turned back by TSA staff or TSA contractors at an airport or by building guards at a federal building, when they are trying to exercise their rights, the TSA and the federal government hope that those people will blame their state legislature? I think they're wrong. The American people are smarter than that. People whose rights are denied by the feds, by federal agents because of federal law, will blame the people who are responsible. The TSA agents who are blocking their way to get on the plane for which they hold a valid ticket. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security that issued the regulations directing that and fundamentally, the people in Congress who enacted that law. And if the feds think that they can somehow misdirect the Real ID rebellion at the state legislatures who's been standing up for their residents' rights, they're just wrong. He's a retiring and timid advocate, Edward Hasbro. <laughs> This is a, 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 a fascinating array of, of perspectives, and, and I'm, I'm so interested by what I've heard. I'll, I'll note the, the kind words Professor Kandub said about my work, but it rests on the shoulders of the ACLU. They, they were so instrumental during the Real ID Rebellion to get out to, their, uh, out to their state affiliates information about this, and we continue to work with them. Look forward to working with you, Gabe, much more. And the Gilmore versus Gonzalez case, which Ed Hasbrook was, was uh, involved with, is a, is a favorite of mine. Uh, this case was litigated in the Ninth Circuit. And fascinating and complex, you could see in the shadow of the decision what the actual regulations were, because those are sensitive security information, which aren't, we're not allowed to see. But the shadow of, the, of those regulations you could read in the Ninth Circuit's decision. Shortly after the decision came down, I was uh, at a meeting as a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee, 
and uh, John Gilmer, I believe you were you were there too, uh, uh, came and presented to each member of the committee an envelope uh, that with a stamp on it, brightly colored, uh, allowing us to mail our identity cards home before we before we ended the meeting and went went to the airport and, and traveled back. Most of us to D.C. The uh, so that we as as government representatives could assert our rights as shown in the Ninth Circuit decision. Uh, my colleagues didn't want to participate in that. I finally felt that I should because I'm a lawyer. I read the case. We're in the Ninth Circuit. Everything is lining up. I know I can fly without ID. But in order to help make a, a broader case for this principle, I said I would do it if a reporter would come with me the next morning to my flight. And I had a volunteer. <laughs> Uh, Ryan Single from Wired, uh, Wired News volunteered to come. My flight was at 9 or 9.30. I said, we're leaving this hotel at 6. Get over here at that time. And he did. And we went down to the, the airport together. Uh, I gave him my ID to hold and the, and the envelope and got in, got in line, snaked, snaked through the line a little bit, got up to the place where they check IDs, and I, and I said, I have no ID. And the woman said, why don't you have an ID? And I said, I mailed it back to Washington, D.C. She, so she wrote something on my, on my uh, boarding pass and sent me over to, a, to an area where I'd get secondary search and not into the long, continuous line where everyone else was. And in a matter of minutes, I'd had a little extra pat down, a little extra search in my bag, and I was through. It was 6.30 in the morning, and my flight wasn't for three hours. So it's an opportunity to get wonderful service in some contexts, not not showing ID at the airports. But this issue will be joined in a more serious way at some time in the future, whether it's access to federal facilities. Uh, we know that, that agencies are starting to declare that you can't attend their meetings on ordinary uh, mundane, if you will, matters. Uh, if you have uh, an ID card from, from certain states, are they enforcing this? Not that I know of, maybe, maybe a little bit. But the question will be joined whether Americans can go to meetings go to federal facilities, go to courthouses, and whether they can enter airport facilities without an ID uh, that's, that's approved by the federal government. I'm so interested by the, the, the challenge we face, though, and particularly sort of the, diet, the, the, the wrapping of the right to anonymity in administration that's often carried out by private actors. And I want to sort of before we go to Q&A with the, or we might have more discussion among the panelists and then Q&A with you in the audience, I want to sort of raise the problem to all three of you to, to, to sort of think about how we would assert a, a right to anonymity at a doctor's office. How the heck, and I don't know, I'm not asking because I have an answer. Uh, you want to get medical care in a, in a physician's office and you don't want the physician to be able to correlate the records of your particular illness, malady, whatever it may be, with other information about you. How would you assert that? Is it, is it, a, is it a case you bring against the doctor and, and try to implead the government? You bring it against the government and try to implead the doctor? Who's got any ideas? And I should draw the question out a little bit longer so I can get somebody to, to come forth with the, to volunteer with an answer. But how do you get at this problem where the government's taking hold of something so basic as what names we can use for ourselves. Well, I've, I've, I've tried to do that. Um, yeah, and 
I there's an older doctor who would do it for me because I played uh, squash with him. And he's like, okay, fine. But then he retired, and I cannot. I mean, I tried, and it's like, no, go away. You you, you give us a real ID, or you don't get health care. Um, and uh, I could, of course, do a fake ID. They don't check it, but I don't want to break the law to essentially get a, a, a free right. And I and I think that it, it sort of goes back to actually back to your book on Jim in the sense that. We have to establish identity. It's part of what life is, whether it's your girlfriend or or whether it's a business partner or whether it's a customer, and there are various levels that we have to do do it. But with the threat that Real ID says, is, look, government will absorb all that cost, where before private actors would sort of come to some level of of, of security and comfort level of, of identity, and they could sort of contract it out. Now, government will do it all, and it's costless for for private parties to demand the government-issued ID. And I, it's, it's a real problem. Without legislation, I don't really see how to avoid that. Any thoughts on this, on this side of how to fight that administ the administrative tide? I, I, I don't know if I have a good answer for how to deal with the doctor's office, but I mean, it, it, it highlights exactly the, the free riding problem with, with uh, the, the, this notion of, you know, one true name, one, you know, one true identity uh, with, with the government is that once you do that, it's, uh, um, it's, it's costless or, or near costless for um, the private sector to, to track you for, you know, various purposes that go beyond the reasons why governments collecting, you know, why the government is requiring that one single identity. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult problem. I mean, the, the problem that, that that highlights for me, which is slightly different but related, I mean, I think most doctors probably would provide services if you got in front of the doctor, but you're not seeing the doctor, you're seeing, you know, the, 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 the clerical staff or you're seeing the, the building guards at the entrance to the building. And I mean, this is a problem. It used to be possible to walk into a government office and plant yourself in front of a government official. I mean, what exactly does the right to petition for redress of grievances mean in a context where government offices doesn't, don't publish their locations for security reasons? Federal agencies don't publish internal phone directories. You know, you're kind of put in the position of someone who goes to, you know, deposit your petition with the king and you can't get into the palace you can't get into the town where the where the king has his palace and you're left depositing your petition for redress with the guard at the drawbridge over the moat around it and you know if your petition isn't acted on who do you sue and this is i mean the TSA in particular has been very successful in they aren't law enforcement agents. If you do something they don't like, they call the local police and then they disclaim any responsibility for the fact that they told the local police, get this guy out of here. But then they say, oh, well, it was up to the local police to make their own independent judgment whether that was really warranted. Um, so we have a government that is carefully constructing in, in the name of physical security. They're also constructing barriers against political and judicial accountability which is part of why physical access matters. I, it seems that I'm full of stories today, and I want to share <laughs> one. This, this about uh, being held at bay by functionaries. I'll, I'll share uh, a tool that I use regularly throughout D.C., and, I, and most cities you're asked to show ident identification 
at the guard's desk down front and to write your name or at least scribble something. Make the appearance of writing your name as you enter the building. And this is the card that I often hand off. I don't use it uh, with federal officials because I don't use it anytime I know that government ID is required. But this is an identity, that, uh, identity card that I had made. I ordered it online, sent them a copy of my picture, sent them a signature, which is not my real signature, but it is a thing I signed. I offered them the information, all accurate except for the weight. And, uh, and this, is the, this is the card that I very often present, and it's as good as anything else, and maybe better, it, uh, it says it was issued by AGR. Nobody knows what that is, but it seems to be important. It says identification number 845318. That seems to lend legitimacy to it, and it actually has a hologram in it that says valid and secure. So, so it must be. Uh, this is my own, essentially my own assertion. It's just in a plastic laminated format that, that people tend to accept and, and believe. Um, I did have it, it was turned away once because it was past the expiration date. So thanks for checking, checking that out. But it's, it, it was very interesting to me, especially when I first started using this, because uh, it was really truly my own assertion of my own identity that I was using. It wasn't a third party, it wasn't a DMV. It was just me saying, this is me, and I'm making you think that it's some third party validating it. And it's an interesting way of sort of monkey wrenching the society a little bit, and monkey wrenching your own habits around, around identifying yourself. Um, before we go to, to audience Q&A, this problem you talked about in more, in more detail, Ed, at the, at the tail end, uh, is not the merits of whether identity works uh, to secure us, what identity is for, uh, but it's what state legislators think is gonna, is gonna happen. And I just, just because, I, because it came across my desk last week, I wanna share some language that was sent from uh, Ramona Doman, the Commissioner of Public Safety in Minnesota, to several state legislators about Real ID. And this is part of the process of DHS working with state-level bureaucrats to try to convince their legislatures to uh, implement Real ID and in some cases reverse their position on Real ID formerly taken to refuse it. Uh, Ms. Doman wrote to the, to the legislators and the governor, in 2009 the Minnesota legislature prohibited implementation of the Real ID Act. The law states, quote, the commissioner of public safety is prohibited from taking any action to implement or to plan for the implementation by this state of those sections of public law 10913 known as the Real ID Act. As a result of this state law, Minnesotans cannot apply for a Real ID compliant state driver license or identification card. In practice, she goes on, this means Minnesotans are prohibited from entering nuclear facilities and certain federal buildings without showing other federally approved ID. As soon as January 2016, Minnesotans may not be allowed to board federally regulated commercial aircraft using a Minnesota state driver's license or identification card. Uh, factually correct, but misinformative or disinformative of the state leaders about what's going on with the, the Real ID Act. Uh, the fact is that 10 years along now and seven years after the deadline for implementation, uh, there isn't going to be any real enforcement of this. But how do we get that across to state legislators? Any of you, you've got a, an organization that's adept at reaching people, you've got a loud, loud voice, and you're, a, you're a, an expert legal technician. Thoughts on that, the problem of convincing state legislators of the actual circumstances here? 
I, I, you know, I think I think it's just a, I think it's a question of of organizing. I think it's also a question of of interest. I, I you know, it, it a real ID. I, th uh, I, when I was doing the reading, I mean, real ID really is a, an issue that is just of a piece with all of these other things that we've seen over the past uh, over the past uh, fourteen years um, of uh, uh, you know the the the, the issue of. of of security becoming, you know, just a shibboleth, right? Where, um, in fact, it's it's actually about bureaucratic ease, but that it makes things much more difficult. I, you know, in 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 terms of, uh, you know, the the real ID rebellion, um, I, you know, I, I was actually working at the ACLU doing communications back when when that was going on, and uh, there really was a, a groundswell uh, of state level interest, you know, both around real ID, both around the notion of a national ID um, being real ID, as well as things like the you know, res resolutions uh, against the Patriot Act. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's it's that that type of, of uh, uh, you know, popular interest that needs to be that needs to be fostered. Um, I think I think un unfortunately in the in the intervening you know, in the intervening 10 years, uh, there's been a, a bit of a loss of in, a, a bit of a loss of interest at the at the grassroots in some of these in some of these issues. But I, I would say that the the reaction to the revelation revelations of mass surveillance following um, the Edward Snowden um, uh, release, you know, is, is is heartening, at least with certain elements of of uh, the American the American public, uh, where, where if you do look at actually some of the public polling, um, there, there is still interest in um, rebalancing civil liberties, privacy, and, and, and security. So, you know, I, I think it's just a question of, of getting, getting the message out there, um, you know, we, which is difficult, but it's, you know, grass, grassroots organizing, as, as we all do. Mm -hmm. Other thoughts? You know, I think, Jim, that we will win any, you know, open public debate in which we can be heard on this. I mean, as you know from, from your own experience, uh, successfully testifying in New Hampshire recently where they were reconsidering what to do. And when they heard how hollow the threats were, they, they, they voted to continue their resistance to real ID. I think um, the last thing that the DHS wants is a major lawsuit where they're trying to deny somebody some federal benefit or keep them off a plane, and they've got the state of Minnesota or the state of New York as an amici uh, on the plaintiff's side against them. They don't want to litigate on those terms. They don't really want to have this go forward in the state legislature um, where they reaffirm their resistance. To those of you, not just in the room, but those of you watching the live stream on the web and those of you with connections out in the hustings beyond the beltway, I think you know, we need to hear about cases where, or you know, situations where state legislatures are considering this so that we can reach out to them and make them more aware of what the feds aren't telling them. Um, you know, get in touch with Jim at Cato, um, with Adam at the ACLU, with myself at paperspleas.org. Um, let us know, bring in some expertise. We can win this if we get a chance to debate it. I think that's right. I, it's always a little bit depressing when you think you have to rely on democracy to get something done. But um, there's a tremendous uh, disinclination by the bureaucrats uh, to do anything about this. I mean, it's a CYA impulse. If something goes wrong, they will feel as if someone will call them to, to account because they didn't keep track of something. 
And so they would prefer not to do anything um, and this allowed to go forward. Um, I think one way that, that people can start um, making this more real is by showing the, the real life impact of real ID. Uh, and that, that's a hard thing to do because it seems somewhat abstract. It all has to do with the ability of government to keep better track and, and disrupt our privacy rights in, in, in a sort of intangible way sometime in the future. But there are stories of people having real problems. Um, there's an interesting case from Indiana of a man who, uh, he was he had a D DUI uh, conviction, so he couldn't change his name. And he was this, uh, the, the son of a single mother. And so the name on his social security mat number, uh, so he didn't, adapt, he, I think, I can't remember how it worked, but he put his father's name on his social security number, but assumed his mother's name in everyday life. And that was the one he, he was known as. So when Indiana adopted Real ID and was looking to see whether or not the, um, the social security name matched the uh, Indiana license name, they found it up, oh, there's no match. And, and they said, well, we have to revoke your license. And I said, well, I've always gone by this name. And they said, well, it's not the one in social security. So we went to social security and they said, well, we can't change your name unless you get a state issued ID. <laughs> so uh, that's an example of what of how real ID is impacting people on a day basis. And getting that story out, I think, will be an important step. Mm -hmm. Well, let's do some audience Q&A. Um, our conference staff are wonderful, and they tolerate uh, our substandard uh, scholars when, when we fail to do things right. And, and here I'm advised that, that you should um, wait to be called on. That's, that's good advice. Wait for the microphone so everyone can hear you. We will have this, uh, this is going out online and, and it will be available on video on the Cato website. It also says to announce your name and affiliation. And <laughs> in an event like this, we do not require you to announce your name and affiliation. But uh, let's, take, uh, let's take questions or comments, people in the audience. Right down here in the center in the pink shirt. Well, my name is Wamar Mwine, and uh, I am a contributor for the Hill newspaper. And uh, as you were having this discussion, I was looking at my DC federal license and mm -hmm. noticing under these lights that there are other security things that I didn't seen before. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wanted to make a comment and ask a question. First, uh, I was a DC resident when I went to get my license. But what I found when I went to DMV is that they really want to fight you know, about certain things. Like I had a Pepco bill that had my name and my new address, and they said that that Pepco bill wasn't valid. So then, if you can't use a Pepco bill for your address, what is valid? You know, it brings up those kind of questions. And the other thing I think, you know, the other thing I was going to mention is my Library of Congress card. Right on the back, it says this is not an official government ID. So what's an unofficial government ID? You know, I think uh, for Mr. Hasbrook, I'm curious. Uh, what do you think when they say, you know, you've got to wait two weeks to get this ID mailed to you? You know, what, where are they presenting this ID? Where are they putting it together? And who's putting it together? Um, good questions. I don't know what the process is uh, here uh, in the district. Um, you know, I think you can frame this in two different ways. There are those who want to pursue I want to be issued an ID in whatever name, or I want to have it right away. Uh, the other way is to frame it as, I should be allowed to do these things without showing an ID. 
And I would prefer to see it go the other way. I mean, it's interesting if you look at, for example, passports. The case law on passports has all been, well, or almost all been, well, you don't have a right to a passport because a passport is just a convenience, so we don't have to give you one if you if, you, if we don't want to, it's a discretionary tool to facilitate your travels. Well, now they've enacted a law that it's illegal to leave the country if you're a U.S. citizen without a passport. But the case law on passport issuance has yet to be revisited in light of that. Now, frankly, I would much rather be able to come and go without showing a passport or any ID and have it revert to the time when that was a convenience that might or might not benefit you and not a requirement. Uh, than to try to set up a system where we have a, a better system of everybody getting their government papers. Um, isn't exactly an answer to your question, but it's another direction to take this, is why do we need this in the first place? Other thoughts? I'm, I feel impelled to tell another story. You use your <laughs> Library of Congress card. Uh, I used to go to the law, the law library in the Library of Congress regularly to use the materials there, and then one day, a functionary is sitting at the door asking to see my my reader card. I had no reader card. I didn't know that you needed authorization to read. But I dutifully went down to the office where those are are, uh, are issued. I did all the paperwork. There, there was an entry where they asked what you were researching. I'm sure that was because they want to know and for good reasons they were asking. But I was full of peak then, and so I offered two things that I was researching at the time, nunya and business. <laughs> Upon receiving my card, I exited, I exited the office, and I said, oh, I can read now, can I? And the woman said, well, prove it, which, which I thought was great. It was very clever. We'll see if I could read and the quality of my reading. Uh, anyway, another question or home. In the center, right behind the gentleman who just spoke. Hi, uh, Tim Sparapani, Concerned Citizen. Um, <laughs> I think Ed Hasbrook, as, as usual, has the, the best of this. And Ed, Ed your point to uh, this being a distributed database issue, I think is really central. 10 years ago, we got very used to saying, at least many of us did, that the best bastion uh, of our liberty was the government's sheer technical incompetence uh, to build great databases. and. While that trend, thankfully, for libertarians like myself still continues, uh, I wonder if we haven't seen examples of how the government can't overcome that problem. I point to Obamacare. Irrespective of your position on whether or not Obamacare is a good federal policy, we have seen that the government can amass resources and throw energy at building systems to overcome some of the technical problems that would prevent uh, a system from being used on a mass scale uh, for public uh, use. I wonder if the panelists could talk about whether or not uh, that is still a, a problem, something we can rely on as a, a potential deterrent to the implementation of a national ID card distributed database system, or whether or not we should find other ways uh, of attacking this problem, and I point to your comments about using the government using uh, Axiom or other data brokerage systems, third-party database builders who are well incentivized to build high-quality data systems, or at least moderately well-qualified data systems. I wonder if people could respond to those points. 
You know, I, I'm not going to defend the technical competence of DHS. Um, what I will say is, uh, unfortunately, we know very little about the actual structure of the Real ID hub. And again, this was deliberate in that by outsourcing it with two degrees of separation, um, that means that it's very hard to get information. It's, it's, it's served as political cover, but it's also served as cover not only against accountability, but against transparency. So the hub, although most of the funding has come from DHS, they've made grants to states, which have then entered into contracts and passed that money on to the American Association of Motor Vehicle Administrators, which has then hired a contractor to build the Real ID switching hub. AAMVA is not subject to any state or local or federal public records or Freedom of Information Act, so we don't know very much about what they've done. There's no direct accountability through federal FOIA and only limited through state Public Records Act requests. And you know, Jim and I have both been involved in a certain amount and we're gonna have to do more and other you know, local ACLU affiliates have done some, but it's really gotta be done, unfortunately, at the state level through public records laws to figure out what is actually going on. The hub is built, how well it works, I don't know. Yeah, I think that that's a basic question with, with all of government, and it's just getting so much easier to collect, sort, and produce information that even, and computers don't really make us smarter. They just make things easier to do so even government bureaucrats can do them. And in a way, that's <laughs> sort of, you know, those two points will meet, and that will be a bad thing. Um, so, I, and again, I, I think contracting out to, to third parties, it, of course, limits FOIA, Fourth Amendment issues just go away, and they do have an incentive, and they, they do a very, a lot of them do a very good job. Um, so it's all very, very disheartening. I guess I would just say briefly, I, I you know, it, the, the, the same issue is, is presented um, in the, in these cybersecurity bills that I was talking about. And, you know, really the, it, there, I mean, the, the, it, it's true that, that uh, you know, technology proceeds apace and it's much easier for the government to collect, analyze, sort, disseminate, store uh, information than before. So it's kind of a question of, of belts and suspenders, I think, when you're developing the laws in the first place, which is part of the problem with Real ID. You know, you need to have um, incentives at the front end in the cybersecurity context with, you know, where where the information is shared, there's gotta be an incentive for the companies doing the sharing to scrub it of personal information effectively. But then you also need to have built into the law uh, checks against government misuse of the information, which also doesn't exist in the real ID context. Um, Adam Kandu, let me let me ask you a little bit about this, 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 the intersection between the common law name rights and administration, modern administration. You can say the administrative state, but this applies equally well to administration in private parties. Administration has changed dramatically. And because of identity systems, uh, you can go anywhere in the country and you can um, get a mortgage. You can buy a car on the spot, maybe even get cash back for buying a car. That's uh, in their industry. Um, so all these wonders, isn't it just kind of over for this common law name right that you assert exists? What, what would you say to that? You could be right, but uh, it, it's still there. And I, I think the, the notion that 
people can choose the level of identity surety that they want. Uh, if you want to be able to get a mortgage anywhere in the country, if you want to get a loan anywhere in the country, well, you better have an identity that can be checked out with the credit rating agencies. However, if you really don't want that, or if you want to buy something without a loan, you should be able to have the option to get your to use a name that doesn't require that. And I think that we can think about the pervasive identity systems that affect virtually all aspects of our lives as, as an opt-in or an opt-out. And the opt-out might be very, very expensive. I mean, I've tried it on numerous occasions. But I think that we have an obligation to keep a legal opt-out and make it relatively easy. I mean, one opt-out, of course, is for privacy is simply to create a shell corporation and do all your business through a corporation. Um, Nevada has actually pretty good privacy laws for corporations. It's expensive. You know, and so why should only the rich have the, 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 uh, the ability to have privacy? So. And, and your own senator, Senator Levin, would not probably approve of you creating corporation for that purpose. <laughs> other, um, other questions or comments? How about right down here? Seems to be former senator. Former senator. <laughs> My name's Lee Yang. I just wonder, with all your example on the privacy important, I just wonder, isn't it our system now basically means photo ID is necessary, whether it's constitutional or not? So why is this uh, real ID is necessary? Second is, uh, although there's, as I say, you don't need a real ID, but if they require, I think the way they argue is because they propose that is after the 9-11. And the reason the people now, they really oppose because they want to transfer the data to the central area or maybe in, in the local area, but they, they can utilize that. This is the, the maybe more critical than privacy issues because currently the system is so flawed and so biased, so, so unconstitutional, basically. That's why they, they would all like to oppose it. Mm -hmm. and, and there are so many states already. And I would rather say maybe so local uh, office, they would not even comply with that. So what's so good if they give you an ID when they give you so much false information? Well, let's take, I, I'm particularly interested in the 911 dimension of this. And I know I've, I've sort of investigated how identity security works, but comments from you panelists on, on the security trade-offs that are involved here. Is identifying someone uh, good security? Works all the time. I, 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 I think. I, the, I mean, the problem is, is that that the, the the short answer is no. I mean, if you're if you're a bad actor, there's there's uh, if you're a bad actor with means, there's an incentive. There's an incentive uh, for you to do everything right. So so in fact, you'll you'll you know travel under your own name, um, and that's actually that's exactly what happened with. Um, uh, on on nine eleven, so uh, identity uh, itself is not um, you know is not a silver bullet by any means for for security, um, but it, and it also carries you know it's it's weighted with these 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 other civil liberties and, and privacy problems. I mean, you know the 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 pro part of the problem with with the the push against anonymity online, for instance, you know to to build in backdoors, um, you know for you know Kalia Redux. 
right, is that... Uh, CALEA Redux. CALEA, the Communications Assistance to Law Enforcement Act. Right, yeah. So, so to, to, you know, for... for um, for companies that are including encryption in their in their devices in their services, um, by default, there's now a push to uh, to defeat that encryption by by building in you know by building in backdoors to to allow. That. I mean, part part of the problem actually with that is when when you do it, you're opening the door. When you when you do it, you may be opening the door for law enforcement and the intelligence agencies, but you're also opening the door for for bad actors. So in fact. Um, when when you have this this undue emphasis on things like identity or real ID, uh, you're, you're probably working at cross purposes with security. Interesting. Let's take. Oh, sorry, I think, I think there's a there's a there's a factual question of whether this actually is responsive to 9/11, and the evidence is not. I mean, there have been bills periodically for decades before 9/11 for national ID schemes. This is one of a number of opportunistic measures that were passed after 9-11 that reflect long-standing agendas. Now, does it actually work? Well, what good does it do to identify someone? Identifying them doesn't do any good for counter-terrorist purposes unless, one, you can link the identity to a dossier. It's useful only in the context of pervasive surveillance, and it's part of both the way the how surveillance dossiers of your activities are constructed based on where you use that ID and how those dossiers are applied to decide whether to let you pass or how to process you when you present the ID. So it's part of a surveillance system and a control system. And it also works only in the context of a pre-crime system that presumes that you can predict which innocent people are likely to do bad things so that you can stop them before they do that. Otherwise, what good does it do to know who you are? Nobody's suggesting that this is mainly useful for executing arrest warrants against people who already the subject of a judicial finding that they should be seized. So this is about surveillance of innocent people for purposes of a pre-crime profiling uh, project. That's the only context in which it would be useful. Let's take one last question up at the back, or maybe another, maybe one or two last questions. Uh, from my uh, uh, research, I have found no proof or evidence that a, a national ID uh, of the federal government would uh, make uh, air travel travel any safer. Um, in addition, I also see that there are problems uh, with the national ID, which could open doors to uh, uh, perhaps uh, stop people uh, from moving about in their own community if they don't have a, a, a national ID. And also, it's a possibility to open the door to people could not vote if they can't pr produce a, uh, a national ID. What do you all think about that? I'd agree with that. I'd just add one small data point from our Freedom of Information Act request. The reports we got on people who tried to fly without ID also included how many people were matched up with the watch lists. And the, that same one day that we got the sample data for from the TSA, um, there were 21 people who were reported to the TSA ID verification call center as trying to fly while being on a watch list. 21 out of 21 were false positives. 
I'll say that my own my own research matches up with yours. You know, I think I think people have in-person identification provides some security. If I know who you are and I give you my pen, I can find you again to get my pen back. And so people intuitively believe that identity systems provide security, but at scale, and particularly with respect to dedicated attackers, uh, it doesn't provide any of that security. And so so it will fool you. Uh, incidentally, the Carter Baker Commission some years ago. Uh, proposed using real ID to administer voting nationwide. Uh, I attacked that proposal and even one of the one of the members of the Carter Baker Baker Commission backed away a little bit from that proposal after after she learned what what it was about real ID. But let's take one last before we adjourn for lunch. Uh, thank you. I'm uh, Larry Gillis and I just came in off the street. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, my question is this could could the feds have totally avoided this issue by simply withholding funds from the individual states. Either give us the information that you don't get money on whatever program, ABCD. Uh, and what the approach they took was to take hostages through the TSA. And you know, I mean, the, even the slowest, the, the dimmest light bulb on the, on the federal Christmas tree could have predicted that there would be a reaction. You take hostages, and you get, you get a problem. But uh, if they had withdrawn, uh, withheld funds, it would have been, uh, and you know, do the usual bureaucratic shuffle on that. You can squeeze the information out of the states. You get the information that you want, and uh, everybody, well, some people walk away happy. Uh, any comments on that? I think the question is a is an excellent comment. Uh, my for my own part, I think that that technique for eliciting state compliance uh, is something that's frowned upon by Republicans, and this was a Republican effort, and so it might have been that Republican thinking uh, declined them that that way of coercing state behavior. But this circuitous route, trying to use the use TSA hostage taking, as you as you put it. Uh, was the way that they found to go forward. I don't know if that technique survives well after some some of the Obamacare decisions, which I'm not not expert on. But uh, perhaps there's less yeah. of an ability to extort. But who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, there there's much more to discuss in this fascinating, complex issue. It really, really goes to the core. Um, I think it was Adam who said, Professor Candub, who said, uh, "We are our identities online," and I think that's true, not just online. But in the world, the identity we use is essential to how we portray ourselves, how we control our own lives. And this issue will continue to play out. I talked about um, you know, having a cake on the 10-year anniversary of, Re of Real ID's passage. But the cake will actually be served after Real ID is repealed or the National ID program is officially dead. So do your part. Um, let's adjourn for now. We'll, we'll have lunch upstairs on the second floor at the George Yeager Conference Center. Restrooms are on your right as you proceed toward the Conference Center. But before we do that, please join me in thanking our guests today, Ed Hasbrook, Gabe Rotman, and Professor Adam Candu. Thank you.